2020 Emissions Reduction Agreement. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra Hora. China's manufacturing slowed further in October as a property slump and investment growth slowdown put the mainland economy on course for its slowest full-year growth since 1990. Volatility was the name of the game in October, yet Wall Street ended the month with record highs. And the unknown U.S. midterm election is probably the stock market's biggest fear this week. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll be talking about airline travel in the age of Ebola with Vinay Dubey of Delta Airlines and Jonathan Galavis of Global Market Advisors. On deck to preview the U.S. midterm, uh, midterm elections from Washington is Barry Wood, RTHK's international economics correspondent. And we'll also get an update on the business of golf in China ahead of the WGC HSBC Championship uh, tournament in Shanghai with AFP Sports Editor Danny Hicks. Paul Schulte, who is the CEO of Schulte Research International, will be joining us throughout the half hour as special guest host. Good morning, Paul. Morning. Great to have you on Money for Nothing this week. <clears throat> Okay, so after a strong start, stocks plummeted to their worst slump in two years. But then the U.S. markets rebounded and closed at all-time highs on the last day of the month. Wells Capital's Jim Paulson says that he expects more volatility. I suspect that uh, the correction we had a couple weeks ago is was not one that did much. It didn't adjust valuations. It didn't adjust sentiment or have people focus more on risk. Uh, it didn't change the fact that we're going to have to raise interest rates really soon and the market's going to have to deal with that. So I kind of think we're going to have a little more turbulence. It's certainly, it's hard to get in the way of a one-way train, so it could certainly go higher. But I suspect we may see levels again below 2,000, uh, maybe even back into the 1800s uh, over the next few months. But Philip Camperiel of J.P. Morgan Asset Management says that we're definitely in better hands. If you look at what the Fed did on Wednesday, they said two pretty hawkish things. They said that inflation is being held down, maybe for temporary reasons that include energy. And they said that all this gradual um, underutilization of labor resources that Jenny Yellen's been talking about the whole time um, is gradually diminishing. Those two things, and yet the market still rallied. And I think that 10% pullback, close to 10%, and now the bounce back here was cathartic for investors. I think we're in better hands. Jim Paulson says that ending QE didn't do it. But when the Fed gets in the game of raising rates and the bond markets also get in on the game, then we will see volatility once again. I think that the uh, central issue is the market went down because of the fear of a global slowdown. But now, look, we've got uh, Draghiism making sure it's not going to last in Europe. We've got Abenomics making sure it's not going to last in Japan. The emerging world is showing signs of bottoming out. And the U.S. never even slowed down. We're probably growing 3.5% plus. We've done that in four of the last five quarters in, in this country. The unemployment rate's rapidly uh, trending towards full employment. There's no way the problem the market's going to have. We can't grow 3-plus closing at close to full employment and going over 80% utilization rates with a 0% short rate structure and a 230 long rate structure. That's just not compatible. So you're going to have to raise rates, and I think that's going to create more turbulence. 
Paul, markets are at record highs and the Dow closed above the uh, 17,000 level on Friday. How much of all of this would you say was a function of QE commitment from the Bank of Japan and the ECB? I think a lot of it is because what we have right now is uh, Europe is on its back. The European financials are broken. Uh, the It looked even a week ago that Japan was about to tip over back into sort of a deflationary you know, phenomenon again. China's slowing. And so what we have is a four-man bicycle where the only one pedaling on the bicycle is the U.S., and so I think that I think exactly what you're what you're saying earlier. You know, if the U.S. stops pedaling, the bike will fall over. That's the problem with the U.S. right now. Or if the rest of the world is not functioning properly, the U.K. is also you know in still in in a lot of trouble. So do you think that the world, uh, you know, analysts have been saying that, well, QE sort of, you know, making its grand exit in the U.S., oh, you know, markets are not affected, they're not going to be perturbed, you know, the U.S. economy is strong, you say it's peddling, but do you think the world at large is still resting on the laurels of QE by central banks in general? Well, I look at look at the ten year bond. The ten year bond is has a very loud voice, and if you're having a ten year bond at two point three percent after all the so called hawkish, um, after all after all the so called hawkish um, you know discussion, uh, boy oh boy, the ten year bond does not believe what's going on here. Okay, well, Senate races this week could hold the key to whether the stock market glides through the year end in a typical post-midterm election rally or whether it gets hit with a fresh bout of volatility. Voters in the U.S. go to the polls tomorrow, Tuesday, in uh, midterm elections to the House and Senate. And with few expecting any change in the Republican domination of the House of Representatives, all eyes are on the race for the upper house. The Republican Party needs to pick up six seats there to take control of the Senate. Let's bring in our U.S. correspondent, Barry Wood. He joins us now from Washington. Good morning, Barry. Hello, Renita, and hello, Paul. So, Barry, listeners out here in Asia may not be so familiar with U.S. politics. Uh, can you quickly bring us up to date with what's going on? Well, I think so. That's a tough challenge, but let me have a shot at it. Look, uh, you mentioned six seats, and then the Republicans take over the Senate. Most people expect that to happen. Now, just to give you a bit of flavor, or listeners a bit of flavor, Renita, let's look at uh, Iowa and Kansas, two states out in the middle of the U.S. Harry Reid is the current head of the Senate, a Democrat. He says if the Democrats lose the seat they currently hold in Iowa, it's all over. So that Iowa, he says, will determine whether the Republicans will get the Senate. Now, look at the next state over, which is Kansas. And you find a Republican who is an old man. His name is Roberts. He's run a bad campaign. The Democratic candidate pulled out. But, in fact, the independent candidate is getting all the Democratic votes. They threw their support to him. That could go for the independent. So there's a lot to be had. But one thing more on Iowa. Mm. The woman who is the Republican, her name is uh, Joni Ernst, likes to say that she castrates hogs because she grew up on a farm. Her opponent, who is running as a Democrat, says his name is Greg Orman. He says, if Ms. Ernst, the Republican, wins, then you can say goodbye to environmental protection, Social Security, education reform. She opposes a $10 minimum wage. And he says it's disaster. And yet the polls indicate that the Republican woman, 
Johnny Ernst is likely to win. It certainly is a very interesting debate. I mean, one of the reports that I read this weekend said um, that when you have a government uh, which has Republicans in the majority in, in the Congress and Senate, but the president is a Democrat, it actually makes for a better government. Do you think there's any truth to this? I think there might be. You know, we're used to divided government, as Paul knows, and that seems to be the norm. We're going to have divided government. It doesn't make that much difference if the Republicans get the Senate. As you say, they've already got the House. But here's something that is important. It's probably going to be easier for President Obama to win on the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal if the Republicans have the Senate, because they're more inclined to favor free trade, and Harry Reid, who could lose his job as head of the Senate, opposes it. What do you think about that, Paul? Well, I think that... um uh, I think it's looking more and more likely that the uh, the Senate will turn Republican. Um, I think beyond the the numbers, I think we have a broken government in America, unfortunately, and I, it's just my country. Um, and so I, I'm not very optimistic that this is going to turn into something that's going to be constructive. I think we're going to get even more divided, more um, rancorous, and more... Um, uh, negative uh, uh, discussion as we go forward into the uh, 2016 elections. Do you, okay, so politically, what about, you know, as far as the markets go? I mean, analysts say that it doesn't really matter who wins. The biggest thing is that the uncertainty should be removed. You know, and historically, markets uh, have always done well after midterms. So what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think the seasonality right now is uh, generally poor, uh, number one. Number two, I think that... Um, it, this is more to do with the central bank uh, activity and the UK and European um, response to quantitative easing. And so I'm, I'm going to say that th- this is going to be more noise than substance. Barry, do you agree? Well, I do and I don't. I think on the one hand, the U.S. economy, as Paul suggests, is doing very well. And I think that's a good sign. It's not a good year for Democrats. And I think that um, President Obama will be very happy to get to Asia, where he's probably more popular than he is at home. But I do think that uh, if the Republicans get to Senate, there may be some momentum. And I disagree with Paul. I think they may want to, in fact, have an agenda and not just say no, which is the image they have quite correctly. They have to come up with something. One of those things could be tax reform, corporate tax reform. We desperately need it, and it may be that you could find common ground between Republicans and Democrats. Well, I guess all will be determined uh, after Tuesday. On how, how soon will we actually know the results, Barry? It does take a while, right, to count up votes and things. Well, that's true. You know, it might be into Wednesday and even Thursday because a couple of these races for the Senate involve runoffs that are likely to occur several weeks after the election. So if it's close, we may not know if the Republicans or the Democrats control the Senate even for a few weeks. But we'll certainly have some good indications by late Tuesday night U.S. time. 
Okay, well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent, joining us from Washington. A quick look at the numbers in currencies. The U.S. dollar to the yen rate is down. One U.S. dollar currently buys you 112 yen. The euro to the U.S. is also down. One euro buys you 1.25 U.S. dollars, and one pound sterling buys you 12.38 Hong Kong dollars. Brent Crude is currently languishing at $85.84, and gold is also down to $1,166 per ounce. The World Golf Champions Tournament, also known as the HSBC Champions, is set to get underway in Shanghai from today. Chris Oliver and Danny Hicks have the story. Over to you, Chris. Good morning. 40 of the world's top 50 players will tee off on Thursday for the World Golf Championships, known as the HSBC Champions event. That's going to be held in Shanghai. The event is the second big tournament to be held in the Chinese port city in just over a week. It's also part of the European Tour's final series of four events, which have in total about 30 million U.S. dollars of prize money up for grabs. We're joined on the line now by Danny Hicks from Shanghai, Danny's editor of Sport Direct at AFP. Good morning, Danny. Good morning, Chris. So this is quite a rich uh, prize pool here. Why is there so much money floating around in the golf ranks these days? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, as you say, this is part of the, uh, we've, we've just had the BMW Masters yesterday, which finished in Shanghai at Lake Malaren, and uh, Marcel Seam of Germany won that, and he pocketed a cool 1.6666 million euros uh, for his efforts over the four days. Um, this is all part of the, the European Tour really trying to emulate the US PGA Tour and the FedEx Cup in that they have this final series of four almost like playoff events uh, culminating in the, uh, the, the DP World Tour Championship in Dubai in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, basically, the circus is in Shanghai for two weeks and they're playing for, they were playing for $7 million prize pool in yesterday's tournament and the one, as you say, the WGC HSBC Champions, which begins on Thursday, they're joined by uh, the cream of the US Tour players and they'll be playing for an $8.5 million prize pool and then the circus moves on to Turkey next week for the Turkish Airlines Open and the top 60 players will all then shoot it out in Dubai to see who is Europe's best at the end of this season. That, that'll be the season end event. So I guess it's a build up, you know, the top players get into these events, the big money is there as a carrot for them to get there and then once they're there, they're, they're all competing to get into it, it, Dubai. Is, is this a case better. of too much golf for the amount of uh, interest in China or is this actually part of a growing interest field in there? Well, I think, you know, that I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think it's part of the growth of golf in China, the fact that there are so many tournaments in China now and so many big money ones. Earlier this year, we had the Volvo China Open at Shenzhen. We've got these two huge tournaments uh, back-to-back in Shanghai. This is the second year they've been held back-to-back. The BMW Masters is, is quite a new tournament. Um, this was only the third running of it that finished yesterday. began three years ago in Shanghai. The, the WGC HSBC uh, Championship is has been established a while now and is probably the big daddy of the China uh, tour, uh, tour events. And, uh, you know, the fact that they can, they think that they can run them back-to-back in Shanghai. The crowds, 
really responded yesterday. Big crowds mm. at Lake Malaren. There will be big crowds again this week at Shashan for the WGC. So, the, you know, the market's there and it seems to grow all the time. I've been here now covering the BMW Masters and the WGC every year that they've, uh, that they've been on. And it seems to me that the, the crowds and the interest is growing year on year. And certainly uh, uh, golf course construction and uh, the, golf, the golf business is, is exploding in China. New courses are coming up all the time. Equipment is being snapped up by the, uh, you know, the Chinese middle class who, who love their golf and love to go out and play. And it's a new thing for China, but uh, it really is growing. Just uh, quickly, uh, Danny, so one, one of the, the highlight uh, players, uh, Royal McIlroy, is not going to be coming this year. But who, who, who do you... No, Rory, uh, Rory's not here, the world number one, which is a big blow to both tournaments, actually, and it would draw more crowds in. But, uh, and Henrik Stenson missed last week's tournament because he just had a little baby, but uh, that's, a, that's a viable excuse, I think. In a, um, in a word, who, who do you favour uh, this week in China? Uh, this week's a difficult one. As I say, you've got the top American players coming over, so you've got uh, you've got players like Bubba Watson who do really well. But I look at two European Ryder Cup players, or three actually, who uh, always do well around this, uh, this course. And your top pick, Brian McDowell and Ian Poulter were runners up, joint runners up last year. And Henrik Stenson is flying in and be fresh from having his baby. I'm going to have lunch with him today. All right. Find out okay. Thank- uh, but Henrik could be the man. Thank you, Danny. That's Danny Hicks, editor of Sport Direct at AFP. And thank you, Chris. Well, uh, in the local news, China's factory activity unexpectedly fell to a five-month low in October as firms contended with slowing orders and rising costs in the cooling economy. The official PMI number eased to 50.8 in October from September's 51.1. This is according to the National Bureau of Statistics. And also in local news, former Financial Secretary uh, Anthony Lung says that it's best to keep the currency exchange link between the Hong Kong dollar and the U.S. dollar. He was reacting to HSBC Managing Director Peter Wong's comment that the role of the Hong Kong dollar will diminish as the renminbi becomes more freely convertible. And finally, a 29-year-old man will appear in Hong Kong's Eastern Court today, charged with two counts of murder over a double Halloween killing in Wan Chai. The police have not identified the man, although the media reports uh, media reports identify him as a British national, Rurik Jutting, a former Bank of America Merrill Lynch employee. Paul, do you think that this kind of local news about this murder is likely to rattle markets at all today, local markets? Um, I doubt it. Uh, this is just unfortunately a deeply disturbed man who, uh, I guess he was fired or he left last week from, uh, Bamel, um, for unknown reasons. I don't think it's going to have any effect, but just very sad and very disturbing. It is indeed. All right. Well, we'll be back to talk uh, more about airline travel in the age of Ebola. That is right after this message. How are policies formulated? How should the government allocate its resources in the budget? Boost the economy. Meet housing needs. Care for the elderly. Or should we focus on education, health care, and the environment? Make your voice heard. Share your views on the Policy Address and Budget Consultation website at www.policyaddress.gov.hk or call our hotline 2810-3768. 
Well, East Asia has not documented any outbreaks of the deadly Ebola virus, but preparedness is on the minds of business leaders, especially those in transport and tourism-related industries who are at the greatest risk of public of a public health scare. We're joined now by Vinay Dubey, who is the Senior Vice President of the Asia-Pacific uh, at Delta Airlines. Good morning, Vinay. Good morning, Renita. So, uh, Vinay, how, uh, how much has this outbreak of Ebola, or I should say the fear of an actual global outbreak, how much of it has actually impacted business? Well, we haven't really seen it uh, in a big way hit uh, either our demand numbers or our financials uh, at Delta Airlines. We have a a pretty diversified uh, portfolio of routes. Uh, We don't fly to the greatest affected regions in Africa, you know, Sierra Leone and, and Liberia and Guinea. Um, and so we've really, we really haven't seen in our numbers. In fact, we've had a, a record uh, third quarter. We put out $1.6 billion in pre-tax earnings um, and, uh, and margins of 15.8%. So right now we're enjoying, we're enjoying uh, really a good, good third and fourth quarter. Yeah, well, the earnings are definitely good news. Uh, of course, uh, you know, Q3 earnings, I mean, have not, you know, for all companies, I think in general, have not so much been impacted by the fear of Ebola. Right. But also considering there was that first case in Dallas, did sort of that spark off some kind of fear uh, in the industry in general and specifically with Delta? Yeah, no, I, we, we don't think it, it sparked off any kind of fear either in the industry or with Delta. And I think uh, the CDC and the World Health Organization, which are really the experts uh, on, on this uh, terrible disease, I think they've done a, a good job in educating the traveling public. In fact, they've, uh, they've been pretty vocal in saying that it is very, very difficult, near zero probability of contracting Ebola uh, on an airplane. And I think that's really kept... Uh, the, the disease as horrific as it is in perspective for the traveling public. My understanding was that uh, the disease could actually be picked up by uh, touching surfaces, touching carpets. Um, you know, that's how it's perhaps transmitted, which is why, uh, you know, the first um, airplane where, where the, 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 Dallas, the Dallas case was actually found, they actually took off the carpets and sort of refurbished or, you know, uh, sort of the things within the aircraft. Is that not, am I well, not the, correct? We, we're being advised on the CDC that, uh, that a routine cleaning, um, and we've asked the CDC to look at our cleaning methods at Delta, and they've corroborated and have advised us that we actually don't need to change our cleaning methods, but a routine cleaning, in fact, they've said even a routine hand wash with soap, uh, gets gets rid of uh, gets rid of the ability to to actually contract this disease. Okay, let's bring in uh, Jonathan Galvez. Uh, he is uh, from Global Markets Advisors, and he is an expert in airlines and hospitality. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning. Uh, so, Jonathan, do you agree with Vinay? Is it uh, routine cleanings that will do the trick? Uh, you know, as far as uh, airline travel is concerned, and you know this risk of contracting Ebola. Well, you know, I think it's very important for the travel and leisure sector and, co- and companies within it to be very proactive. Uh, you know, companies like airlines, hotels, uh, any transportation providers uh, really need to be able to uh, be p- more proactive, I think, is, is really important. And, and so I think that uh, – sure, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to ask, I mean, how do they need to be proactive? What do they actually need to be doing? Well, I think one is just attitude, right? Uh, when SARS first broke out, uh, I remember when SARS uh, first broke out, and, of course, the airline industry is the first industry to always get impacted when there's a 
global health catastrophe that's that's uh, contingent on transmission, whether that be through air or other means. And I remember uh, when that first broke out, the airline executives during that time were saying, oh, everything's fine, don't worry about it. You know, and sure enough, two weeks later, four weeks later, things broke out into a huge catastrophe to where, you know, 80% of the airline seats were empty on airplanes flying in Asia. Vinny, so, what do you think of no, what Jonathan is saying? Sure. So, so I think that a that, uh, couple of things. One is that there's a big difference in the way uh, SARS is transmitted compared to the way Ebola is transmitted. But I think in terms of attitude, uh, I, th- I think it's absolutely correct in that you need, to, you need to have an abundance of caution whenever you're dealing with any kind of catastrophe, uh, especially something as serious as Ebola. And so this is one where I would say it's really, although I am an airline executive, this is one where what you're hearing from me is not really my opinion because I'm not the expert uh, on Ebola or any other form of, of, uh, of disease. What you're hearing from me is the advice we're being given by the experts, by the CDC and the World Health Organization. And what we're trying to do, and you know we're an, an Atlanta-based company, so we've got a long and deep history with the CDC, uh, which is uh, based in Atlanta as well. And we're being very proactive in terms of making sure we go above and beyond any kind of guidance that we're getting from the CDC. And the latest is, is some of the screening that's going on at the airports, and we're, we're certainly uh, collaborating with them and supporting them in any way that we can. Fair enough. Uh, Jonathan, is there any kind of uh, advisory that airlines are giving out to travelers? Well, I think, you know, as it relates to global airlines or airlines that have a global footprint and, and their response to the virus, I think that uh, clearly Euro- European airlines or European airlines based uh, uh, or that have operations uh, into Africa, I think are, are certainly uh, being a little bit more strict and a little bit more uh, focused on, on giving advisories to passengers and being very cautious. Of course, European airlines have a lot longer of a history uh, going into into Africa and having uh, direct uh, airline connectivity compared to U.S. airlines. But, you know, if we, if we look at recent news that came out, I mean, just, just within the last 24 hours, there was a report coming out of uh, Sierra, Sierra Leone uh, that the uh, Ebola virus is actually spreading right now at a, at a rate of nine times faster than it was just two months ago. Whoosh. So the idea, you know, that this issue is kind of going away or whatnot is, is actually uh, unfortunately not true. Uh, Sierra Leone looks to have a, a serious situation right now. And actually, there, there is some debate right now on transmission, you know, on, on how the virus is actually transmitted. There's no, uh, while there's CDC provides some clarity, there is some other uh, uh, debate uh, going on as it relates to how the virus is actually transmitted right now. Okay, well, thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning. That is Jonathan Galavis of Global Market Advisors. And thank you, uh, Vinay Dube of uh, Delta Airlines, Senior Vice President of Asia Pacific. Thank you for joining us this morning as well. Uh, Paul, so we have a few things to look out for this week. Of course, U.S. midterm elections, as we've talked about on Tuesday. Also, Macau Casino revenue reports on Tuesday and a slew of earnings. Hong Kong exchanges, Toyota, SoftBank, HSBC, Glencore, Alibaba, and and many more. Is there anything else we should be keeping an eye on this week? Um, I think Alibaba's earnings are going to be important because everybody and his brother has piled into that stock. I happen to think that the stock is still undervalued. 
Um, <clears throat> so I think that's something to watch out for. Uh, HSBC as well. Standard Chartered had a terrible set of earnings and was under tremendous pressure last week. I think uh, it's important to watch out for HSBC's earnings. I'm not that optimistic on HSBC's earnings, so I'd be careful about that one. That could um, uh, cause HSBC stock price to um, be weak. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Paul Schulte of Schulte Research International. And a quick look at the numbers before we depart. The Australian ASX is open. It is down slightly to 5,502. Sol's Cosby is also down half a percent to 1,955. And a quick look at the weather forecast for today. It will be mainly cloudy and dry, appreciably cooler in the morning with a maximum temperature during the day of around 24 degrees Celsius. The temperature right now is 21 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 66%. Thank Thank you to our producer, Chris Oliver. This is Renita Malhotra-Hura signing off for Money for Nothing. And here is the Half Hour News. A 29-year-old man will appear in Eastern Court today on two counts of murder over a double killing in Wan Chai. Sean Kennedy reports. Police haven't identified the man, although media reports say he's Rurik Jutting, a former Bank of America Merrill Lynch employee and a British citizen. He was arrested early on Saturday after he called police to his apartment in Wanchai at the Luxury J residence block. Both victims are believed to have been sex workers from Indonesia. One, aged between 25 and 30, was found inside the apartment with stab wounds to her neck and buttocks. The other victim was later found hidden in a suitcase on the balcony. Police said she was naked and wrapped in a towel and that her head had been nearly decapitated. Police are said to be examining thousands of images on the suspect's mobile phone. People Power lawmaker Albert Chan has questioned the effectiveness of holding a de facto referendum on, de- on democracy through territory-wide by-elections. Some pan-Democrat lawmakers have suggested resigning from the Legislative Council to force the by-elections as a way forward for the pro-democracy Occupy movement. But Mr Chan says he prefers con-